The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narconon Ojai. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for today's podcast. I want to remind you to please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that people can find us. Also find us on YouTube. We have a new YouTube channel. And today's podcast is videoed. Our guest did have a webcam, and so it's a video. So you can go to YouTube and you can watch there. If our guests don't have webcams or don't want to do video, you can still listen to the audio and watch the little sound bar jump up and down on YouTube. This is episode number 153, and we are closing in to the end of our first our third year of podcasting, and we thank you so much for listening. Today's episode is an interview with Gerald Posner. Gerald Posner is a best-selling author and investigative journalist with a Pulitzer Prize nomination to his credit. He was a Phi Beta Kappa and summa cum laude graduate of the University of California at Berkeley. At Hastings Law School, Posner was an honors graduate and served as the associate executive editor for the Law Review. Gerald was a litigation associate at the Wall Street law firm of Kravath, Swain, and Moore, and later provided pro bono legal representation on behalf of surviving twins of Nazi experiments at the Auschwitz death camp, which led him to co-author his first book, Mengele, The Complete Story, a best-selling and critically acclaimed biography of the infamous Nazi angel of death, Dr. Joseph Mengele. He just released a book, Pharma. It is an explosive and meticulously documented expose of decades of fraud, incompetence, conspiracy, and avarice of the pharmaceutical industry, including the involvement of the Sackler family. Let's talk to Gerald Posner. Gerald, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You know, I, I'm going to wait for you to tell your story, but in my mind, you are a freedom fighter in many ways, you and your wife. Well, you know, that's great to hear, Joni, actually coming from you, because I think the work that you're doing and the people who are listening to the podcast are so important, the addiction podcast. They are what I call the, the walking wounded. They either had problems with addiction themselves or their family members, relatives, spouses, others who have been with people they love who have gone through problems with addiction. When I started this project, which I thought was a history of the pharmaceutical business, I didn't realize how much the opioid epidemic would draw me in, how important it became as an investigative reporter to look into. So I got on fire about the very people that you know, you're listening to because I understand now in detail after four years of work, how the pharmaceutical industry, and I don't mean just Purdue Pharma, they're just a small part of it, but how the entire industry has for a long time marketed, especially addictive drugs that they knew were addictive. They thought they were great money makers and the people that suffered the consequences, that was the cost of doing business for big pharma. And it's a shame. It's, it, it's more than a shame. It's actually criminal. Yeah, you're right. It is. Um, we have talked about this you know, that we're almost done with our third year of the podcast. And thank you for your acknowledgement. And we have talked many times about how it's really all about the money. It's all about the money. And 
that's that's the story you're going to tell. But before we get way far ahead of ourselves, can you give me just a little bit of your background? You know, like what led Gerald Posner to be where you are today writing books like this? I think sometimes in life, uh, things take unexpected turns. So uh, for for me, the unexpected turn was I used to be a uh, a lawyer. I'm now everybody's favorite type of lawyer, a non-practicing attorney. Uh, but, <laughs> but back then in the late 70s, I was a large law firm, went out into my own practice in 1980, met my wife, Tricia, that year. And I was doing a pro bono lawsuit where you do it for free for two twins who had been experimented on a Nazi doctor at a concentration camp, Joseph Mengele, and they wanted some compensation from Germany for all their medical costs. And that went on for four years. We were thrown out of federal court eventually. And I said to Tricia, you know, I have all these documents that are new about this Nazi fugitive. We thought he was then still alive. Maybe I can turn it into a book. And and I did with a co-author from England. And I liked that process so much that we went off and did a second book about uh, Chinese triads, criminal gangs in the heroin business. Here I am 14 books later, uh, 15 books between the two of us. Uh, we we like to go to projects that we can spend a few years on. A story about following money in the Vatican took us on and off nine years. Pharma wow. coming on five years. And what I mean by that is I go to a publisher and I say, I'm interested in doing this overarching story. No one has attempted to do the history of the American pharmaceutical industry in a single volume. They were smarter than, than I was, or they, they knew that it covered everything from insulin to what was happening with over-the-counter drugs, to FDA lack of regulation, uh, to pricing, to the opioid epidemic. I like that type of challenge. I'm happiest when my room is filled from floor to ceiling with boxes of documents and we're wandering around archives and conducting interviews and getting fresh information. So I built the book up. I never know where it's going until I finish it. And that's why I'm very lucky to have publishers that will give me that leeway. I don't go to them and say I have a, a conclusion and I'd like to just now go and find the evidence that supports my conclusion. Uh, years ago on the Kennedy assassination, I went to them and said, I don't know what happened. Went off and did the book and came back and thought Oswald did it. They were shocked, so was I, but that book uh, you know, caused a lot of controversy and got a lot of attention. You go where the facts take you. And that's what I did with yep. pharma. Wow, I, um, I applaud you. You, you, because you really do look into the mouth of the lion, so to speak, especially with big pharma, especially. The, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, when you say look into the mouth of the lion, it's interesting because in, in some ways, I think what surprised me with pharma is, okay, if you go out on the street and let's take somebody who has not had a personal experience with addiction. So I just went and grabbed somebody on the street for random opinion. I grabbed 10 people. Maybe one of them takes a pill for hypertension. Another might take pills. Maybe one takes nothing at all. And I said, what's your view of big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry? I think they rank pretty low. They're down there with Congress and used car salesmen. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, we think of them already as drugs are too expensive. You know that even if you don't take them. Uh, we've heard that time and time again. Politicians talk about it constantly. They've been talking about it for 60 years and, and nothing much has been done yet on it. Uh, and so pharma wears a black hat of sorts, but it was much worse than I expected once I started to do the work. And in part, because I realized that what we know as the modern pharmaceutical industry grew out of these, what I, 
patent drugs, drugs that were sold without any regulation in the late 1800s, most of which were based on cocaine, heroin, forms of um, codeine. So the drug business got its start, its origins on addictive drugs that were not regulated before they were all banned in 1914 under the Harrison Act. That was the basis for the drug industry. And then they had to go out and find new ways to sell drugs. And the panacea for them was penicillin. World War II was a revolutionary drug. Thank goodness they found it. That changed the industry. But for a long time, their roots, their DNA, you know, it's like taking a 23andMe test or one of these genetic tests. You go out and you find out where your background was 500 years ago. So if you Good peel, way to off, put it. peel off, uh, you know, Merck and you peel off Pfizer and you peel off some of these drug companies, you go back and you find out they were peddling cocaine and heroin kits through Sears and Roebuck catalog, as I write about years earlier. So that's where they started. That's where some of them ended up again when it came to opioids. Wow. Heavy duty. That's amazing. So... What what got you to write about this industry? What sparked it? Was it just because uh, drugs are such a big problem? As as is often the case, I I misjudged the story, meaning that I thought the story was just a straightforward. Here's a history of the American pharmaceutical industry from these patent drugs to the latest changes in biotechnology. And along the way, I would tell stories of individual inventions or problems or whatever. I always knew that I'd be touching on Purdue Pharma, the opioid epidemic. But when I started the project, I thought, you know, there's been so much written about it by great writers, by individuals who have come out, good journalists who have covered the story, by individuals who have been victims who have told their story. There's so many outlets for information like you with the Addiction Podcast and others. There's little I can contribute that's new to this. That's where you never know. You have to wait until you get into the reporting. And there was new information that came out to me through the release of classified files from the FBI about the Sackler family back into the 1940s and 50s. You start to understand what made the Sacklers the Sacklers. Um, and also the files that I went into to finally find out Purdue's story in detail, that as bad as you think Purdue is, when you said before, where's the criminal charges? You wonder sometimes why we're only talking civil charges why there hasn't been somebody stepping up to the place as a prosecutor and talking about criminal charges, because the, the behavior of companies and some of the executives at Purdue and in other big pharmaceutical companies when it came to the opioid epidemic is just a, as much as I've seen over the years in covering Nazi war criminals and 9-11 and terrorists, this is as shocking a story as any I've seen. Wow. Can you give an example of one of the most shocking things that you ran across? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, and this will not surprise uh, some of your listeners. They are the internal emails and the memorandum sent between the sales staff, the detail team that went out, let's say, for Purdue, and some of the senior executives um, for the marketing team that made its way up to the board of directors, occasionally to Richard Sackler, uh, who was the the son of one of the patriarchs of the family. And the emails would, uh, would talk about the number of reports that they had received over a hotline about either abuses or problems with overprescription taking place by a doctor. They had sort of this hotline that you could call up as a consumer and say, by the way, I think your drug is being abused because a pharmacist down the street seems to be peddling it nonstop around the clock. Or you could say that I think it's causing a problem beyond what's just on the side effect list because I see my wife is taking it and she's having X, Y, and Z. In a period of time, in 2010, 2011, 
when this was far before it was even halfway through the death toll that it has since taken, they were receiving record numbers of reports of abuse. They were even receiving record reports of diversion. Um, I list those inside the book. You know how many they reported to the FDA? 10, 20, 30? No, zero, wow. not one. They weren't legally obligated. Didn't break, that's partially the FDA's fault. There's plenty of blame to go around here. You know, we all look at the drug company. We say, okay, they're to blame. They are, they aggressively market it. No question about it. They push it. They ignore those doctors who are, are doing the heavy prescribing. However, they're also distributors like McKesson and others, multi-billion dollar companies. They know the location of the overprescribing doctors and don't do anything about it. They're the doctors themselves, four to 5%, making up 90% of times of the prescriptions. That's part of the problem. There were the pill mills that operated, for instance, just about 40 miles north of me in Broward County here in Florida for years. As you know, 85% or more of the nation's opioids from one county and politicians doing nothing about it. There's the FDA with lax regulation, failing to take aggressive action. Even in 2001, when they come in to modify the label, they still allow Purdue to get away with, on its label with things that no other drug company had gotten away with. Were they taking money? Was it corruption? No, I don't think so. I looked into that. I think it was just this, they were overburdened. There was too much for them to do. They made the mistakes, unfortunately, on some of the most serious drugs like these opioids. So when you say, what's the most shocking thing? I continue to be shocked time and again, not only by the failure of people to take action, but by the negligence of so much of the system to have stopped what has become this, this terrible epidemic. Wow. And the fact that they knew is just mind boggling. You know, you, you brought up the name McKesson, and I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to some of our previous episodes, but we interviewed a filmmaker who made a documentary about the dumping of opioids in West Virginia. And she was an investigative reporter from Boston, and she started looking into it and found out that the distributor was McKesson, and McKesson was dumping billions of pills into West Virginia. I think ultimately there was some sort of a slap on the wrist for McKesson, probably, you know, was basically a, a dent in one of the quarters in their bank. But it's interesting that you say that because they they were dumping billions into West Virginia. Yeah, you know, it's very interesting because that uh, podcast is so important because people don't know the story. And there you have it as the reporter tells you that. So it, it uh, encouraged people to go back in the archives and listen to that. And it tells me something that's very interesting is that distributors are, are one of the elements. I say that, okay, if, I don't know if this will make sense to your listeners, but in some ways we all focus on Purdue. We focus on the Sacklers and that is correct to do because they were sort of at the forefront of making their own drug Oxycontin into a blockbuster seller, big profit maker, put them on the Forbes list as one of the wealthiest families in America with an estimated $14 billion back in 2014. However, every time we focus on Purdue and the Sacklers, there are a whole series of executives at McKesson and at pharmacy benefit managers and other distributors around the country and these overprescribing doctors who go, oh, I'm glad they're talking about Purdue because they're worried that once everybody is finished with Purdue, we're gonna to turn to see the others. I mean, McKesson and some of the other distributors have been named obviously in the, in the opioid litigation they try to minimize their role by saying we were just the distributors, but right. just the distributors plays a major role. As you indicated, the reporter who catches them not only dumping opioids in West Virginia,
but they know the numbers, they know where they're shipping them. They are what I call the accomplice to the manufacturer. Yep. So the manufacturers Purdue, they're making the drug and they're selling it with their detail team, but they can't sell it effectively unless they get help from their accomplice. The accomplice is the distributor. That's right. And in addition to that, there's the doctor that we spoke about on the podcast who, um, who was, I mean, so criminal in terms of the prescriptions that he would write and he would give to people that he knew were just going out to sell. And yes, he went to prison, but now he works for the state of West Virginia. It, and yeah. you go, uh, how could this be? You know, I mean, how, how could this possibly be? It is remarkable to me that it, it, at times, and so this is, this is the part I think of uh, what Tricia and I do as a uh, living where we occasionally have to sort of slap each other on the face and say, let's keep going. Because there are those moments <laughs> when you get very discouraged. So you do oh, yeah. something like that. And you must have this all the time happen, uh, you know, with you and Steve. You say, we're just putting a finger into the dike and the flood's about continuing over us anyway. So you read about the doctor. He serves his prison time. He gets out. Now he's working for the state of West Virginia. You think he should have nothing to do with anything remotely and especially taxpayers' money paying for a job for him, it's outrageous. The thing yeah. is, that is interesting on this is that it, it seems to me that, you know, everybody tries to have their cake and eat it too when it comes to opioids for the people profiting from it. So you, we know, and I talk about this inside of uh, the uh, pharma, that these companies like Purdue and, and Johnson & Johnson, when it comes to, you know, their products uh, that they had and the fentanyl products uh, by Incis, they all are looking and they use very sophisticated software programs to find the doctors who are most likely to be the heavy prescribers because that's where they want their detail team to concentrate on. And I, it makes sense. If I was selling balloons, I would want to know the four or five party stores in the country that sold the most balloons and I concentrate on those. So they're looking for those doctors. They're able to do it very effectively. And sometimes they even create the heavy prescribing doctor from somebody who's just a moderate prescriber by encouraging them to do so. The part that is amazing is that they then claim in all of these lawsuits, uh, we, we weren't able to track the individual prescribing habits of doctors, so we never knew who the heavy prescribers were. That's absolutely false. They knew who they were because they sold to them, and they knew who they were, not for pill for pill, but they could have identified them in their sleep, and they didn't do that. We haven't held them responsible for that. Wow. Wow. What else? Back to the book, but what do you think about like the lawsuits and how they're trying to settle the lawsuits that are in the news? I mean, some people think they got hit, but they didn't get hit very much. Oh, you know, there's it's an interesting question. So how did they get hit? <laughs> they did get hit, no question. But one of the things that I find frustrating, to say the least, and anybody who reads farm well i don't suffer from high blood pressure but my blood pressure goes up when i'm writing it so i know that it forces your blood pressure up but we're time and time again and not just in opioids but in other areas in which pharmaceutical firms have done egregious things and lied and omitted test results that they knew about dangerous side effects of drugs that were then distributed and caused all types of side effects and what is the payment for it they paid for it. You're absolutely right. They come to a settlement with the government that seems eye-popping to those of us who earn a living by working for a living. It's 300 million, 400 million, a billion, five billion dollars. We think, boy, they really got hit. But these are companies making 80, 90 billion dollars. So it's right. the cost of doing business for them. 
in the in the opioid litigation, you've seen McKesson and others hit the deals already, some of them to get out of particular suits. And the one that may pay the price that it can't recover from will be Purdue after the Sacklers have already emptied the firm for billions and billions of dollars. About $500 million is left, but over $12 billion have been taken out in terms of profits. So even if that company goes under, uh, these are economic fines. And the, and the thing to remember, and you know this so well, Joni, is that even in 2007, take us all the way back if we had been able to stop the opioid epidemic as it was growing then, but we w- weren't, Purdue pleads guilty to criminal charges, and three of its top executives, including the president, CFO, and chief counsel, plead guilty to criminal charges for false advertising, misstatements, or a whole penelope of uh, problems. No jail time, just fines. And I don't mean to say that a fine isn't punishment. It is, but it doesn't scare the industry. It doesn't scare pharma executives. They know that if they get caught, the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have to pay the piper. That means they're going to lose some of their profits by having to pay for a settlement. And that's a shame because if we take the criminal element off of this, then we lose something. Now, we did see some people go to prison recently in incest. John Kapoor, the president of the company, and, and two others, their behavior crossed the line 10 times to Sunday. Finally, somebody's been held responsible. So the first jail sentence has popped up, but that, the criminal charges use far too little. Tell me about that. Tell me about incest, because I'm actually not familiar with that so, particular so, situation. So incest had a, a fentanyl product. That was their product that they, they were marketing. And they were told by the FDA in the approval of that product that it is a product for end of life, as most opioid painkillers were supposed to be originally anyway, for end of life terminal cancer patients. That's the use of this product. They then went ahead with their detail team and they created a speakers bureau as Purdue and others did. They lavished trips and benefits and all types of gifts on doctors as other pharmaceutical companies do. And they decided that they could market their fentanyl products for things that were more than just end-of-life terminal cancer pain, such as back pain, such as the problems you might have from arthritis, the same thing we've seen from others, except their fentanyl product was extremely addictive. They went out over the board by doing the following. They paid money to some doctors at local levels for bribery. The money was actually able to be tracked, not in terms of the bribery that we all know, which is putting them on a speaker's bureau or giving them a trip to the Bahamas for a conference, but actually a bag of cash. But more importantly, they even hired on their sales team um, former uh, strippers uh, from adult clubs, one of whom, as a salesperson, gave a lap dance to a doctor so that he would prescribe more of the product, which he did. So we're talking about almost a rogue operation here. And finally, by the time they cracked down on it, they had uh, made a lot of money on the stock price. They had sold a lot more of the product than they expected to, but they paid the price. Wow. Wow. And that is, by the way, if I can say one thing, I'm sorry. I think that okay. might be to show you uh, that uh, my book is ambitious, if nothing else. Uh, that's a footnote, possibly, in the book. I don't know if it's larger than a footnote. I'm trying to think right now, but it might be a footnote. Wow. So the it's a great story, but there are a lot of stories told around it. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com 
or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. For more information on our sponsor, Narconon Ojai, visit their website at narcononojai.org. That's N-A-R-C-O-N-O-N-O-J-A-I.org. Or call 1-866-231-5924. That's 1-866-231-5924. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Wow, that's amazing. Does your book cover the whole thing that I I look I watch television sometimes and I go how did I miss the time when it became legal and acceptable to advertise drugs on television? Oh. Is that covered in your book? Oh, absolutely. Now that's covered in chapters. Uh, at least one, uh, two chapters and one long chapter dedicated just to it. DTCA, as it's called to the FDA and other places, which is direct to consumer advertising. So it's a fabulous story that for years and years, you could not, as a drug firm, pharma firm, advertise directly to consumers. What I found out, one of the things I think your listeners will find remarkable is that the Sackler brothers, the senior Sacklers, uh, and in this case, we're talking Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond. They were all psychiatrist brothers. They they are the leaders of the uh, Sacklers who bought Purdue Pharma created it later on and put out OxyContin. They owned an ad company, Arthur did, in the 1950s through the 60s. That ad company in New York, McAdams, made Valium, the first $100 million drug for Hoffman LaRoche, made Valium the first billion dollar drug. It was Arthur Sackler who revolutionized medical advertisement, who showed them how to be aggressive in advertisement and got a Medal of Honor, the equivalent of it from the Advertising Association for having done that. He used to go around the law to advertise to consumers by doing the following. He would have his companies take ads out in Time Magazine. Um, They would take it out in National Geographic. They would take it out in Newsweek. It would be a perforated insert in the middle of the magazine about how wonderful Valium was as a regular drug. The company would claim it was marketing only to doctors. Those, so that only doctors would pay attention to it they would be sent free all those magazine subscriptions to doctor's offices. And for those old enough to remember when they used to go to a doctor's office and wait in the waiting room and there were magazines on the cover or on the side, they were all free subscriptions. When they were finally challenged about that, Sackler went before the Senate and they said, aren't you really advertising to the public by putting it in consumer magazines? He said, oh no, the ads are perforated along the edge. So we expect a doctor to rip those ads out before they put the magazine out in the waiting room. Well, of course, that never happened. So they were always what I call gaming the system to try to get ads to consumers at an early time. They weren't legally able to do that. But also prepackaged stories 
for consumer health columns for the equivalent of what were blogs, but there weren't online blogs then. But for people who were doing stories in magazines, they would prepackage stories about a new wonder drug. So you'd open up Time or Newsweek or Life magazine, you'd hear there's a wonder drug coming up for menopause, something fantastic that's going to restore femininity. There's a, a wonder uh, to be able to change your skin, something new in terms of arthritis. Those were almost always done by the drug company in an outside firm who gave them to a magazine. The magazine would edit a little bit and put it out. But nobody thought that drugs should be advertised directly to consumers. That changed only in the late 90s, in 1997. And it was a test experiment where they thought they would try it out. Originally, when they went to do it, the first ads, if you remember, were a series of ads in which they used celebrity spokespeople. The, one of the biggest ads was Dr. Welby. Um, Marcus Welby was a big television character. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They used him, and he came on the ad to say, I'm not a really a doctor, but... Um, I'm going to tell you about this. They had the fellow who did the Jarvik uh, replacement artificial um, heart. Uh, he came on to tell it. Uh, and so they, they, Peggy Fleming was doing an ad early on. Uh, they pushed the ads in terms of celebrities. And then they had a loophole which said that if you don't describe what the drug is for, you don't have to mention side effects. Well, the FDA and others thought, oh, nobody will ever do that. Why would you put a drug on television, spend all that money if you weren't going to tell people what it's for? Except that changed when all of a sudden there was a little purple pill. Uh, it was uh, Prolizac. Uh, you know, the first time Nexium came out, the, those pills, uh, there was Claritin, which was the first of those. Claritin was shown as people running through a field of flowers, and it would keep saying Claritin. Claritin, and they would look so wonderful. If you watch the ad, you think it must be for an antidepressant. You don't know it's for an allergy pill, but it created right. all of this buzz. And then essentially you had companies marketing things like Nexium by their color, the little purple pill. The change to that was the even more purple pill. So direct-to-consumer advertising started off small, became the uh, now one of the biggest multi-billion dollar slices of ads in the country. And no matter how many side effects are given on a TV commercial, it still makes the drug work. The reason is back to Arthur Sackler, who told his colleagues in the 1960s, if you advertise to consumers, you create demand among them. They go into their doctor's office saying, what about this drug? I just heard about this for my condition. And that gets the doctor to prescribe it. He's right. He's creating demand both by going after the doctor and pushing them to prescribe it, and going after the consumer to create interest. And that's what we're getting hit on both sides on this. Wow. Did, did you, in your book, because um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but in your book, do you talk about antidepressants or are they specifically or are they part of what you cover in general? No, I, I talk a lot about um, antidepressants and uh, particularly what I call um, mind drugs in part because of Arthur Sackler, he was looking for, he, he got his big break in a antibiotic that he pushed for Pfizer. That's where he changed the ad business, a much ag aggressive campaign for a drug called teramycin. And then he got involved in Librium and in Valium. They taught him something. In 1960 was the approval by the FDA for the pill. Uh, it was the first time Enovid was the pill. It was the first time there was an oral reproductive contraceptive. And that, of course, the, the serial withheld, and I go into this in detail, the side effects of the amounts of estrogen that were in that that caused 
breast cancer, where they got the first incidence of the breast cancer being caused by that. It took a Senate investigation in 1970 to start to have the drug companies lower their doses of estrogen that were in there to much smaller amounts. But that pill was the first what we call lifestyle pill, meaning that it was a pill given to somebody not for a condition, an illness, or uh, an infection that they had, but literally because they wanted to make a choice, in this case about reproductive rights, but Sackler said and hunted for what he said would be a lifestyle drug that would be a make you feel better pill. He wanted to come up with a pill inside the lab that you'd be able to take every day, even if you were healthy, healthy men and women, go out, take the pill, it would make you feel better. And he knew that it didn't exist yet. So he looked at a number of, uh, of stimulants, Adderall and others that were on the market, but they had too many side effects, the amphetamines. And I go through that as to how they looked at those as the next successor to what they wanted and, and amphetamines didn't work. Then they looked at the depressants and those were really things like Thorazine and that, much too strong. So they were looking for a Thorazine light. In comes Librium, in comes Valium. And what Sackler does very well is he markets it not only for anti-anxiety, not only eventually do they market Xanax for panic attacks, and then the SSRIs come with Prozac and all the rest, but they target women in particular. So two-thirds of the prescriptions for Valium, when it was the number one drug in America for 10 years, were women. The ads were based upon an army experiment that Sackler used called the executive monkey experiment, in which they had two monkeys that got electric currents the, monkey, the monkeys were given a lever on one side, and if they operated that lever, it stopped the currents from being given. When they would do autopsies on these monkeys, the one that was operating the lever, the so-called executive monkey, they would find out had ulcers and cirrhosis of the heart, the liver would have all types of plaque built up and coronary calcium. The monkey that didn't operate the liver, liver didn't have any of those uh, maladies. So Sackler concluded the executive monkey, the one operating the lever, those are men. They go out, they have to make the money, they go to their job, they have to look strong for society, they're under tremendous stress, they get ulcers. So we'll market Valium and Xanax and all the rest of these toward men so they can be better at their careers. We'll market it toward women because they're neurotic, because they are hysterical, they have all types of problems, it'll help them through menopause, it'll make them work harder at the home and they'll handle children better. It's the most sexist possible advertising you can believe. There's one that ran, the most successful ad for this was one that showed a young woman aging over time called 35, single and neurotic, about how she had failed to find a man for all her life and ended up back talking to her father again after these years and Valium helped her get better. So I do talk a lot about not only the drugs and the effects of the drugs and the investigations into what these companies held back from the public and how they're eventually brought to task, but the marketing of them as well. It's a story that um, it, it takes up you know, the center part of my book and one that I, you can tell I'm uh, very uh, incensed about still. Yes. A question about the Sacklers. Are they, how far back do they go? I think you said the 40s, but, but did they go much earlier than that? No, they, they start really in World War II in the sense that okay. that's their start in the pharmaceutical industry. Arthur Sackler, the eldest brother, works for Shearing, uh, a German pharmaceutical company. And Shearing is taken over shortly after we went to war in 1942, actually. They end up being taken over by the, uh, an American commissioner because all the German companies are seized. But the U.S. government is investigating Shearing beforehand uh, to find out if Shearing is operating as a front to take Nazi money and send it to South American subsidiaries. They talk to Arthur Sackler, and he becomes an informant for the FBI during that period. So it's quite interesting because I got the FBI files about the Sacklers later, 
And the Sacklers, today we think of them, and rightfully so, as one of the most successful entrepreneurs in America on the back of many people's uh, lives for, for OxyContin. But in the 40s and 50s, they were hardcore leftists and, and communists. They were card-carrying members of the Communist Party. The FBI was investigating them. Arthur Sackler used his companies to hire blacklisted journalists who had been fired for taking the Fifth Amendment before Congress. His brother Raymond was a card-carrying member of the American Communist Party, and so was his wife Beverly, both of whom were Purdue directors years later. So they clearly moved away from their early leftist start. But it's a fascinating story to watch these sort of, uh, you know, committed communists move from a vision of we're going to work at this edge of the pharmaceutical company to becoming what I call the OxyContin kingpins a few decades later. Yes. I was going to say, is it that far to look at it? Because if you look at the kind of the communist philosophy and the devaluation of the individual, I mean, what a great way to really devalue individuals by turning them into mindless robots via drugs. Yeah, yeah no, it's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that way, but you're absolutely right. I, <laughs> I think what happened in their case is that they, as they started to taste success and it came, they sort of started to like the good life. They may have lost some of that conviction because I lose sight of them being involved in that. But it is interesting to note that Arthur Sackler, even when he finally got to China, long after Richard Nixon had opened up relations to China, uh, he, he, one of his people that he looked up to as a student in, in medical school was a fellow called Norman Bethune. A lot of listeners will not have heard of him. He was a Canadian physician, a committed communist who went off to China to fight with Mao's army uh, in the revolution. And he died at the front in a medical mobile unit. Arthur called him his, quote, moral exemplar. And that's pretty amazing. He was raising money for him when he was a student. So the Sacklers had an unusual group of people that they admired. And it is interesting that once you understand them, it doesn't explain the complete how of the opioid crisis, but it gives you a perspective because in some ways, Joni, I think that what we've done with the Sacklers, we've made them into caricatures, meaning that they are just stick figures. We know we think of them as the greedy pharmaceutical executives who are running the company. Once you get behind them and realize that they've been involved in the 50s, 60s, 70s, now, Arthur Sackler was able to get NASA to take along one of their products that was a disinfectant on a moon uh, on a moon mission. So when they came back, they used the disinfectant to make sure they weren't bringing any germs back from outer space that might wipe out the planet and made millions off of selling that betadine. So, you know, they've been in, in there will be things that people read about them in the past that they were involved with with drugs. And they'll say, oh, I never knew that Valium in the Sacklers. Oh, I never knew that Librium. Oh. Betadine. And so they were there before, way before anyone had heard of OxyContin. OxyContin just became them the biggest hit ever. It was the blockbuster they had dreamed about. Wow. Did they have anything to do with thalidomide? No, they did not. And as a matter of fact, the, there's a great uh, thalidomide is part of the story here because thalidomide, this nobody I think who's listening to the addiction podcast will be surprised to learn that politicians in Washington take a lot of money from the drug industry. And as a result, they talk often about reform, but they are forced to act only if something terrible happens. So when I say that, uh, what I mean by that is that in, in 1960, they started Senate investigations into the drug industry, and I cover them in a fair amount of detail. They, they were started by a senator called Estes Gafoffer. Won't mean anything to, to most listeners, but to anybody who remembers a bit of history, he was the crusading Tennessee senator who went against the mafia in the mid-50s and got a mafia fellow 
called Joe Valachi to testify. It was big news. So he went after the drug industry next in 1960. Some people may say there's some justice in going from uh, <laughs> the mafia to the drug industry. And his big issue was pricing. He was focused on that. So he wanted to cut the, we were the only country that was then giving these 17 year patent protection, exclusive patent protections and monopolies to drug companies. He wanted to cut back on those. He wanted the government to be able to negotiate prices. He wanted to have drug companies not have the unilateral right to set their prices. And that got nowhere. They chopped that up in Congress. It looked like the bill was dead. And then all of a sudden, the news broke in 1962 about potential thalidomide scare. In Europe, where they'd been distributing thalidomide in countries for nearly three years to deal with morning sickness, from expectant mothers, it turned out there are now an accumulating number of birth defects, horrific birth defects, missing right. limbs in that thalidomide babies. And in the US, although there had been some trials done, the drug had not been approved because one woman at the FDA, who was the approval officer, Kelsey, held it up. She kept asking the company who wanted to put it on the market, you've given me all this information about its safety, but I don't think it's enough. As a result of her delaying it, everybody in Congress said, oh, thank goodness, we missed the thalidomide disaster, so let's pass a drug bill. But instead of focused on prices, it was focused on safety. So they gave the FDA all types of new powers. Absolutely true. Great things, but they completely ignored the pricing part of it. And the drug company eventually figured ways to get around the FDA rules. But they did make the testing of drugs much more comprehensive. And, and that was a good result of the thalidomide disaster. Not good for the victims, but good for society as a whole. Right. I, this is a personal question, so I apologize in advance. Do you get death threats when you write something like this? The, no, um, the I don't. I mean, you know, we all. So Trisha and I sort of operate in a fearless way, and then sometimes we only get nervous when we publish. The most problems we ever had, believe it or not, it's hard to imagine. So I've written about, you know, heroin gangs and and Chinese uh, gangsters, and wrote about uh, 9/11, wrote about Islamic terrorists, did a book on Saudi Arabia in which I sort of you know talked about members of the royal family possibly knowing about 9-11. The worst of the abuse came after we did the book I mentioned earlier, in which I thought that Oswald alone had killed Kennedy. There are people oh, so wow. firmly committed to the idea that he was murdered as part of a wide conspiracy. They assumed that if any Johnny come lately wrote a book that said it was Oswald and it got a lot of attention, was a finalist for the Pulitzer, I had to be part of the conspiracy to cover up the truth. And we got a rat's tail cut off sent to us. We had fish sent to us in an email. I got accosted on the street. I got assaulted once at the airport. Uh, we had an FBI file opened up. So that was a uh, dicey period. But if you told me that saying Oswald alone killed Kennedy was going to be the most dangerous uh, book I ever did, I would not have thought so. I wouldn't have thought about it. And is that the book that you were nominated for a Pulitzer? Yes, it, it was. Um, the I think that, you know, what I always... Um, look at is a book like this so your listeners know it goes through a process of a legal check as well so it's sent to a lawyer who looks at it for areas in which have you gone too far do you have the correct sourcing for it have you lied to someone uh and i'm asked to produce all of the backup information that i have for interviews who did i talk to uh the lawyer i disclose to the lawyer who the sources are if somebody's not identified in the book who they are so it's a process where it's vetted because Every publisher who puts out a book wants to make sure that the book does well, but also wants to make sure they aren't embroiled in litigation. And right. anybody in this country can sue for anything. I understand that. It doesn't necessarily mean they have a good case. But, you know, I, I try to walk this line of 
being as aggressive as I can with the information that I find. Um, and sometimes there are leads that I pursued, for instance, in pharma. Uh, you read the book, it's a large book, but you read it and you think I went on a straight line, meaning I started here and I ended up here and that's all I did. In reality, that's probably 25% of the research. 75% falls by the wayside because either it's no longer important, it's not part of the story that you find, you're, you're selecting to go this way and not that way. But some of it is because it doesn't pan out. You get something from one source, it sounds tantalizing, but you can't confirm it. My view is if I get something from one source, it's a one source bit of documentation, it's oral, I don't have documents to back it up, I can't print it unless I can find another source to verify who's an independent source, knows nothing about the first one, or I find documentation to support it. So I have a tough standard for myself. So some things that were tantalizing that people might say, oh, wow, they did that, aren't in there because it wouldn't meet that satisfied status for both myself or for legal check. I think that's why you're so successful because you're not doing innuendo. You're doing verified facts. Yeah, and you have hard to, to argue. I think. I, you know, yeah. I think that um, we get, you can pass along, and I don't even do this, but uh, you know, you can go on the internet and get uh, gossip, rumor, and innuendo. But if you if you spend some money for a book, you better get the real deal. And and, and that's why, and you know this as well. I mean, somebody looks at the book, they think, oh my God, it's eight hundred pages. I'm not, I'll hmm. never finish that. But it's really only five hundred. That's still not short for some people. But three hundred <laughs> pages are end notes, what I call source notes, because I want people who want to look at those. If they say, hey, how did he get that? Where's that from? And then I tell you where it's from, what document it's from, or what file or whatever, and people can go and check it themselves. Wow. Gerald, you didn't want us to air this podcast prior to the publishing of Pharma. Why is that? Well, because I don't know if the Sackler family, for instance, know the contents of Pharma, um, and that it's pretty hard on them at times. So I'm trying not to give them the advanced leg of preparing what I call uh, a package of uh, publicity that uh, might come out and answer that prematurely. I want to engage them in a debate, if that's the debate, or anybody else of the companies that I talk about. And there are companies, as you know, I talk very hard about companies who are doing orphan drugs, and I believe are gaming the system on orphan drug roles, meant originally for small genetic parts of the population. They're among the highest priced drugs ever. I'm very hard on pharmacy benefit managers. There's an entire chapter in which I go after PBMs for increasing the prices time and time again. All of those entities are making a lot of money. I'm sure that they're, they're not going to just take it lying down. They're going to come back and they're, uh, they'll come after me in one way or the other. And I don't mean come after me physically, but they'll say, what about No, I, under I understand. Yeah, what about that? So I'd like to make that from the time the book's officially out and they have to look at it as well, as opposed to giving them that heads up earlier, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And by the time this podcast airs, your book will have been on the shelves for... Um, at least five hours. A couple weeks. So there you go. Um, one of the things I always do with, when I interview people who have a story of addiction or are helping or what have you is I ask if there's one message you want to get across, what would it be? And the thing, the thing I was thinking of with you is like, okay, so I read this book and I'm obviously not going to take action against the Sacklers, but what do you hope, what's the message you would like to give our listeners about the book and what, how they could use that to be better educated and better armed going forward in terms of drugs? Right. So I think there are two 
two general things. One is uh, there's a chapter, I think it's chapter 47 called You Messed with the Wrong Mother. And it's a, a story of just one uh, member of a, a, a mother who had lost her daughter, Marianne Scalic, you know, from Addiction Podcast. Uh, and uh, she is an example to me that when you have somebody who falls to an overdose in opioids or any other drug, it, you mourn the loss of your loved one but she is a rare example of somebody who decided to take action and pursue the company she thought was responsible and become an activist. So for some people, the, the answer to what happens to them in their family life from addiction might be to become more of those activists and there are groups all over the country, as you know, for recovery and addiction that are, are helping and they always need volunteers and help. In a much different way, for those who aren't struggling with addiction personally, I just say be an informed consumer when you get a prescription from your doctor written to you and when you go to the pharmacy to pick it up. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people during the course of the last four or five years who would say, I'm taking a pill for high blood pressure. What pill is it? I, I don't remember. Uh, it uh, could be this. Um, you know the strength of it? No, I'm not sure. I even ran into people who said they were given a pill by their doctor and they couldn't remember if it was for blood pressure or maybe cholesterol. People sometimes don't ask. They, Trisha likes to say that she has girlfriends who spend more time asking about uh, uh, when they move to a town about the new hairdresser they may want to go to than they ask their doctor if they're prescribed a pill. They're uh, given a pill. You're given a pill, whether it's a contraceptive or something else for menopause. Don't just take it and assume that it's all right for you. People throw away the insert because it's in such tiny little print. It's hard to read unless you have a big magnifying glass and you figure that's not going to apply to me. But do a little bit of research or ask the doctor more about it. Ask directly what the side effects are. Have them tell you. And when you go to the pharmacy, you can do the same thing. There's one last thing about going to the pharmacy. There's a gag rule that's been in place. The Trump administration may be lifting it at long last. Um, some states are resisting. The gag rule is it doesn't allow a pharmacist to tell you if it would be cheaper to get the prescription that you've just given in if you paid cash as opposed to using the insurance policy you have. It's madness. I know it sounds crazy to think that you could go and your copay could be $80, but if you paid cash, you might only pay $25. The pharmacist knows that. They see it on their computer. They can't tell you that, and that's why these pharmacy benefit managers and others who get rebates make so much money. If you ask the pharmacist, by the way, I know this is my price under insurance, would it be cheaper if I paid as a cash patient, they then have to tell you. So ask that question occasionally. You might be surprised at the answer. Interesting. Interesting. So you said your book talks about antidepressants. Um, I, would, I would just say as part of this message, a big part of this as well is psychiatrists. And if psychiatrists are recommending drugs for you or your children, those that's a definite interest instance where you need to question and you need to question what the side effects are and you need to educate yourself. We've talked about that before on the podcast. You have to be educated about your own health. Yeah. And, and in this sense, what you say, Joni, is very important. And you have to be educated about your children's health as well because you can't make those choices. So there, there is little doubt that with the expansion of stimulants like Adderall, for uh, you know, attention deficit disorder as it's given out, and for antidepressants as well, uh, companies make money as their market expands. And there's no doubt that children have come into focus and they, are, they do receive millions of these prescriptions a year. There are some instances, I'm sure, in which the, there are extreme cases of those disorders that are helped by medication. But I think that in some cases, in some cases, parents 
have taken care of their children um, by prescribing to them, by allowing a doctor to prescribe to them, thinking that that's the way to do it. And it's not necessarily the answer. So I'm a big believer that, you know, uh, err on the side of being conservative, err on the side of trying to avoid the medication if possible. But I say that with the same knowledge that at times, look at drugs have their side effects, there's no doubt, but there are times when those side effects have to be endured because the overall the benefit is worth it. And there's little doubt that in cases, for instance, of antidepressants or psychiatric drugs, there are people with severe bipolar or schizophrenia who benefit from antipsychotics that otherwise have a debilitating range of side effects. Uh, but at the same time, our simple antidepressants like SSRIs and anti-anxiety pills over-medicated and over-prescribed, I have no doubt they are. Right. What area are you going into next? Maybe you shouldn't tell me because maybe somebody's listening on the podcast and they'll quick and burn all their documents. <laughs> no, I, I wish I had an answer for that. If anybody's listening on the podcast and has a good idea for me, they should send it to me through my website because I, what happens with uh, Trisha and me is we can't think beyond the current project. We get immersed in it. Yeah, we're living pharma. We're totally consumed by it at this moment. To us, this is what matters. And then at some point a year from now, whenever we start to get our head enough out of it, we think, what do we want to do next? As of now, we just want to do some pharma follow-up, whatever that is, we don't know. But usually I go to something else about which I know nothing, which is easy to choose. There are a lot of things about which I know virtually nothing. <laughs> and I recreate the wheel from the ground up for four or five years. Okay, well, I have an idea for you, which we will discuss off the air. Deal. What is your website, Gerald, if people want to reach out to it's you? It's just uh, my last name, posner.com, P-O-S-N-E-R.com. Okay, good. And your book is on Amazon? It is indeed on Amazon. As a matter of fact, Amazon, uh, I saw recently has a, uh, a price for it that almost is the same as the price I would pay the publisher to buy a copy. I don't know how Amazon does it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Gerald, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I think it's fascinating. And I think that I hope our listeners will read the book because I, I know that you know, parents who have kids who have been lost to addiction or kids who are addicted, if I were that parent, I would want to know, you know, how come, where did this come from? And I think, you know, we know it goes way, way earlier on the chain than the doctors. So I'm urging the listeners to get a hold of your book and to read it. So thank oh, you. Thank you so much. I think your listeners will find it may not be a satisfying answer, but they will get the answer. They'll see it's in the DNA of the drug industry. And if we don't make some changes as a country in terms of legislation oversight, uh, maybe a different drug. It won't be opioid painkillers, but something else down the road will come to be another epidemic claiming lives or ruining lives for people, whether it's uh, you know, medicinal marijuana or recreational marijuana, or it's another version of a painkiller, or it's another version of a synthetic narcotic. I don't know. But what I'm saying is, this isn't the last one. We go through these crises. We had it with Valium in 1975. That seemed to end. It happened then later with Xanax, and then that seemed to end. Prozac and the antidepressants got overused, and then Adderall and the stimulants were pushed against. Now we're at the stage where opioids are claiming you know, hundreds of thousands of dead. That won't be the last time that pharma will have an excessive way of dealing with Americans. So if you understand them, you may not be able to stop them, but you'll know who you're dealing with a lot better. Yep. Unfortunately, I think you're right. Thanks again, Gerald. Thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you for listening and watching our podcast today. I hope, sincerely hope, that 
any of you who are listening who have lost someone to this epidemic will become very vocal about it. You know, you might think, I'm just one person, what can I do? But in today's age, with social media, you can do a lot. And if you or someone in your family has been a victim of this epidemic, you need to make it known. You need to make yourself known. You can call legislators. You can call your local officials. You can call the president. You can call. You can get onto social media. You can become an influencer. And you can be heard. So if this podcast today, if you get um, Gerald's book and you read it and it inspires you to speak up, please do. And then contact us and we'll put you on the podcast so you can tell your story as well. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and go to YouTube, find us on YouTube, subscribe there as well. And we will be back again next week with a new interview. You all take care. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, sponsored by Narcanon Ojai. For more information on Narcanon Ojai, call 866-231-5924 or visit www.narcanonojai.org. Narcanon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard.